Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new to our ministry, we hope you'll feel at home here and connect with us. Uh, please leave a comment below to let us know that you listened in. Now, right now we're in a series called, Is God Racist? And today's message looks at Africa's very first Christian and shows us how God can use us to make a difference in our world. But some of you may reject the premise of the passage altogether. Uh, evangelism, missionary work, they're looked down on today by many people. A survey from Barna Research last year showed that 47% of practicing Christian millennials believe that it's wrong to share your faith with someone of a different religion. Caitlin Lowry may be an example of this thinking. She shared that she used to go on short-term mission trips to Africa and Eastern Europe. She and her team would volunteer in orphanages, clean houses, put on plays, and share the gospel. Later, she regretted all of it. She wrote, why did I assume that my faith was the right faith? Why did I assume that they were lost, living their beautiful, content lives right where they were? Why did I assume that their lives needed changing? This is white supremacy, she said. This is colonization. Well, fortunately, many Africans would disagree. In 1900, there were 9 million African Christians, making up about 9% of the population. Today, nearly half of the continent professes faith in Christ, and Christians number more than 630 million. A Gambian-born Yale University African scholar Laman Sane describes the appeal of the gospel this way. The old African religions provided the rules, rewarding good conduct and punishing wrong, but they had only a limited ethical range. Christianity answered this historical challenge by a reorientation. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus didn't mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. He says, Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Now, what I think he's describing is the way that the gospel messages fulfilled the longings of the African people and the people of uh, people from all backgrounds. He's saying that the ethical ideals, the sense of the sacred and the yearning for our savior are embedded in the heart of African culture. And Christianity not only fulfills those longings better than African traditional religions, but it's a far more African alternative to the secularism of the West that's often pushed by white Europeans and North Americans. I suspect that the same thing could be said of many cultures of the world today. Now, I said that there are currently 630 million professing Christians in Africa, but I'd like, you to, I'd like to tell you the story of the very first one. In fact, he's the very first completely non-Jewish convert to Christianity recorded in Scripture. And the encounter shows us how God can use us to bless our world. Uh, I'll read from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to pause the video at this point and grab one so you can follow along in the text for yourself. Acts 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. 
and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the pre through he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of God. Now, I feel as if some background is needed. One of the last things that Jesus told his disciples was to go and make disciples of all nations. He had promised them that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit enables the church to speak in all kinds of languages. You couldn't get a clear statement of God's desire for them to share the good news with the whole world. So we're expecting them to spread out, take the gospels to the ends of the earth. Except that's not exactly what happens. Not at first, at least. Thousands join the Jerusalem church, but there doesn't seem to be any rush to move out. In fact, we have to wait until chapter eight before the church does scatter. And then it's only in response to the first martyr and terrible persecution breaking out against the believers. It's like God's spirit needs to force them out into the world. And even then the apostles decide to stay put in Jerusalem. Philip gives us a picture of how an ordinary believer can be extraordinarily used. Through him, we learn how God can use us to bless the world that feels cursed. And I say cursed because this is a period when Jesus has just been killed and his followers are being hunted down. It feels like everything's falling apart. And I think it can remind us of some of the chaos that we see in our world today. Now, in verse 26, an angel appears to Philip and he calls him to head south to the road that leads to Gaza. Now, because many people wouldn't be familiar with the area, Luke adds the note, this is a desert place. When I first read that, I thought, how cool it would be to meet an angel. But then it sunk in what was being asked. 
Uh, earlier in the chapter, back in verse 4, we learn that Philip was one of the Christians who were scattered in the persecution. And he headed north, straight to Samaria. When I read that, I, I like him already. <laughs> if you were here last week, you know how much hatred and prejudice there was between Jews and Samaritans. But Philip has been changed. Having been touched by the love of Jesus, he shows that love to Samaritans and he shares the good news with him. In, in verse six, it says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Revival is broken out in Samaria and Philip is right at the center of it. He's a big deal. People are hanging on his words. God is performing amazing miracles through him. It's satisfying, maybe even exhilarating. Philip's at the apex of his career, but then an angel shows up and tells him to leave and go to a dusty road in the desert. Had to struggle with the call, right? How could you leave such success? How could you walk away from the crowds? How could you accept that kind of demotion? Only he did. Verse 27 just says, and he rose and went. He accepted the demotion because that's what he'd seen Jesus do for him. And he shows us that for God to use us to bless this world, we have to be willing to follow him to uncomfortable places. For Philip, that meant a desert. For Peter, it involved jail time. For Paul, it was shipwrecks and riots. For us, it's often more about awkward situations, right? It means uncomfortable conversations. It's about heading into circumstances that are intimidating and unfamiliar. Sometimes it involves us suffering loss or physical trials. But when we trust God as he leads us to uncomfortable places, we open ourselves up to be used in his plan. Now, as Philip heads toward that desert road to Gaza, he probably pictured another crowd. Maybe he was being sent to evangelize Gaza itself. Our dreams of God's plan for our lives are often more about our glory than God's. As Philip arrives at his destination, there isn't a crowd, just a man and his driver. He seems like he's a big deal, but he's got a story. The man is seated in a chariot. He's reading while his driver guides him home. He's an Ethiopian, and so to a first century Jew, he represented the ends of the earth. Ethiopia was about as far away as most people could ever imagine. We learn that he's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace here wasn't her name, but it was more like her title. It's similar to saying Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That was his, his title, and Candace was hers. Now, this man is in charge of all her treasure. He's a chief finance minister, and he's one of the most powerful men in the kingdom. He'd reached the top, but he'd sacrificed so much to get there. He was a eunuch. That means he'd been willing to give up the potential for marriage and children in order to get ahead. He had chosen between family and career. He'd given himself to his career. But something was still missing in his life. He knew that there must be something more than just money and power. There was an ache in his heart. 
We know that because he was desperate enough to travel all the way to Jerusalem to try and find meaning. A one-way trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, even with a chariot, would have taken 50 to 60 days. What kind of spiritual hunger drives one of the most powerful men in the country to take four months off work to seek God? I'm just trying to picture Christia Freeland sitting down with Justin Trudeau to break the news. I realize we're in a pandemic. There are lots of complaints about the CERB and the ballooning deficit, but I need to take four months off to try and find God. That would be pretty extreme, right? How's he going to feel after having traveled all the way to Jerusalem, arrived at the legendary temple, only to find out that as a eunuch, he's not allowed in. There were laws against that. But worse than the legal restrictions was the prejudice and discrimination he would have encountered. He would have faced discrimination. Uh, he wouldn't have faced discrimination for his skin color. That wasn't a thing yet. But he would have been mistreated by those who learned he was a eunuch. Uh, Joseph, Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He said that eunuchs were to be detested and said that people should avoid even conversation with anyone who had, quote, deprive themselves of their manhood. I think the Jewish attitude toward eunuchs was a little bit like how some Christians treat people who identify as transgender. In addition to the rightly held biblical convictions about God's will for our gender and sexuality, many believers can add to that and treat transgender people with disdain and disrespect. They can avoid them and look down on them. The Ethiopian eunuch had to have felt the pain of some of that, that, and yet God noticed him. In fact, God sent an angel to pull one of his star evangelists away from a revival in order to reach him. And Philip noticed him too. He didn't pull away from him or look down on him. He didn't approve of some of his life choices, but that wasn't the point right now. He was a man who was seeking God and he'd been excluded. He'd been left behind. And that's the th second thing that we need to do in order for God to use us to bless the world. Not only do we need to follow God to uncomfortable places, but we need to notice people who are left behind. I think we can sometimes become so fixated on the many who reject God's message that we miss those who are open and seeking. Our eyes are on the crowds and we miss the individuals. For God to use us to bless the world, we need to notice the people who are left behind. And God's Spirit is there helping us to do that. Now, noticing the eunuch was one thing. Speaking to him was another. I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes. You find yourself on a dusty road, next to the richest, most powerful, and most exotic person you've ever seen before. He's riding a chariot. You're lucky to have a mule. He owns his own scroll of Isaiah. You've only ever seen one of these in the synagogue. This guy, totally out of your league. And you don't know his culture or his values. So when you get to verse 29, when the Spirit says to, to Philip, go over and join his chariot, how are you feeling? It's like being asked to walk onto the tarmac and knock on the window of Jeff Bezos's jet and ask if you can board. That'd be pretty intimidating, right? When Philip gets that challenge, verse 30 just says, Philip ran to him 
there wasn't even any hesitation. He didn't know what he'd say to a guy like that. But when he arrives, he hears him reading the book of Isaiah. Silent reading wasn't a thing in the first century. So Philip can hear exactly where he is and what he's reading about. And so he asked him whether he understood what he was reading. Turns out he was stuck. And so he invited Philip up into the chariot. Now, it wasn't so much that, do you understand what you're reading, was some brilliant evangelistic opening. The point is, he had the courage to speak. And sometimes just opening your mouth is enough. A simple question communicated, I don't see any walls between us. Why don't we have a conversation? That's all it took. But that took courage. For God to use us to bless the world, we need to have the courage to speak for him. Now, as Philip speaks, he's given a seat in the chariot. And the Ethiopian reads Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, where it says, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, only two verses are quoted here, but he probably read the entire section. But then in verse 34, he's like, who's he talking about? Is, is a prophet just speaking about himself or someone else? I wonder, do you think you could have answered the eunuch's question? Would you have been like, I'm kind of rusty on the Old Testament and I haven't really read much of Isaiah, but let me tell you some of the things that Jesus said. Verse 35 says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. All scripture ultimately points to Jesus. So any question about the Bible ultimately ends with him. Philip probably told him the sheep being led to the slaughter was a reference to the Messiah. God had come in the person of Jesus and he died like a sacrificial lamb. He didn't open his mouth because he willingly submitted to death. As the Lamb of God, he was dying for the sins of the world. When it says that in his humiliation, justice was denied him, it's saying that, saying that Jesus' death was unjust. The only sinless man to ever live was condemned to death as a criminal. But through his death, he bore our punishment and secured our eternal life. Now, in verse 33, when it asks, who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. It can be read in two ways. In one sense, the Messiah ended his life on this earth like the eunuch would, without descendants. He didn't have a generation or family line coming from him. But the passage can be read another way. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth, can speak of the fact that because Jesus was re resurrected or taken from the earth, his generation or his spiritual offspring are so many they can't even be counted. At the time, thousands of people had already turned and put their trust in him and became part of the growing family of Christ followers. Can you imagine the hope that would have brought to a childless eunuch who had just faced humiliation and injustice himself in Jerusalem and knew that he would die without physical descendants? By explaining to him that that would have required 
a little preparation. To be used by God, we need to prepare for the opportunities that God gives. We need to read the Bible for ourselves, but love means that we don't just read the Bible for ourselves. We need to think about the questions that our society and the people around us are asking and see how the Bible answers them. We ought to be able to take people to some basic verses that we can use to explain the gospel. For God to use us, we need to prepare for the opportunities God gives. Now, as Philip explained the gospel further, they came to water, which if you're on a long desert, desert road, that probably wasn't a coincidence. Notice, notice the Ethiopian's question in verse 37. He says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, he was prevented from worshiping in the Jerusalem temple by the 50-day journey to get there. He was prevented by the restrictions that first century Jews put on foreigners. He was prevented by the fact that he was a eunuch and couldn't be circumcised. But if he understood the good news about Jesus correctly, there wasn't anything that prevented him from be, being baptized and being, becoming a full-fledged Christian. He was baptized that day. And when they came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit carried Philip away, but the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Now, we don't have a record of what happened when this Ethiopian finance minister arrived home. Surely people had lots of questions, but likely he had a generation of spiritual descendants. We know from history that by 180 AD, there were African Christians being martyred for their faith already in Carthage, in modern day Tunisia. We know that there were churches established in Egypt by the year 200. By the end of the third century, North Africa was one of only three places in the world where Christians were in the majority. And by at least the fourth century, Christianity was firmly established in the Ethiopian's homeland, as well as neighboring Abyssinia, and that without Roman rule or influence. The global mission movement isn't about colonization or white supremacy. It's about a God who has broken down the barriers that divide us, it's about a spirit who renews and fulfills the best of each culture's gifts and hopes. And it's about a savior who invites all people into his family through his death on our behalf. If you haven't put your trust in him, what's stopping you? What's hindering you? God's mission spreads as ordinary believers follow God to uncomfortable places. As they notice the people who are left behind and as they have the courage to speak for him, and prepare for the opportunities that he gives. Be a part of what God is doing to bless this world. Let him use your life for his eternal purposes and be willing to cross the barriers that separate people and exclude those he loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have brought down barriers. I thank you for the way that you make everyone equal at the cross. We all have equal access through faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the joy that this Ethiopian believer testified to. And I pray that that joy might be ours through faith in Jesus. I pray that you would draw people to him. 
And I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to follow the Holy Spirit where he leads. Give us grace, Father, to step out from what is comfortable, to open our mouths to speak for you. Help us to notice people who are, who are open and seeking, but maybe hurting and excluded. May you use us, Father, to bring hope in a world that desperately needs it. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope today's message has helped you to see God's amazing plan to bless this world and how he can use you to be a part of it. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, I pray that the Ethiopian's example would move you to turn to him. He shows us that Jesus can fill the emptiness that money, power, and privilege never can. And if you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.